Football is around the corner, and we are ramping it up over here on the Ringer NFL feed in the month of August. Every week, Ben Solak and I will be bringing you not one, but two extra point takens. That's right. Double the trouble as we predict, debate, and analyze our way through camp and the preseason every Monday and Friday. But that is not all. Steven Ruiz and I will be coming to you every Wednesday. We'll talk about everything in the world of the NFL. And who knows? Maybe Steven will even have something nice to say about your favorite squad. Though, frankly, I wouldn't count on it. Subscribe to The Ringer NFL Show on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to follow The Ringer NFL on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at Ringer NFL. This episode is brought to you by Lincoln in the all-new 2024 Nautilus Hybrid. Featuring a customizable 48-inch panoramic display, available Revel audio system, and available perfect position front seats with active motion massage. Oh my God. The world isn't wide enough. Visit Lincoln.com to learn more. Some models, trims, and features may not be available or may be subject to change. Check with your local retailer for current information. Lincoln and Nautilus are trademarks of Ford or its affiliates. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9, with available all-wheel drive that sets the pace and seating for up to seven adults with zero to 60 speed that throws you one moment and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. This happened when I was 16 years old, maybe 17. And so just to quickly give you some insight into me at that time, what was going on in my head and really who was going on and on and on in my head. Uh, This pretty much sums up the vibe in my head at the time. Yeah, 16 years old, I'm still walking around with the Pee Wee's Playhouse theme song running in a loop in my head. I don't remember exactly how this started, the Pee Wee Herman thing, meaning Pee Wee Herman's colossal and enduring and entirely sincere importance to me and to my family, our lifelong reverence for him. We've always loved this guy in our family. We've always loved this guy as though he were a member of our family. Pee Wee's Playhouse ran on CBS on Saturday mornings from 1986 to 1990, and it was somehow more cartoonish than any of the actual Saturday morning cartoons that I loved also, uh, but I didn't love the cartoons as much. Cindy Lauper sang the Pee Wee's Playhouse theme song. I had forgotten that, but then again, I have always known that. Of course, that's Cindy Lauper. Who else possibly could have sewn that? All right, Pee Wee Herman, late 70s LA underground sketch comedy star, 80s movie star, uh, Saturday morning children's show star, tabloid infamy star, heartwarming comeback from tabloid infamy star, early 2010s Broadway star, etc. Pee Wee Herman, a profoundly silly pop culture sensation. And, in my universe at least, a universally beloved character. A fictional, but somehow also spectacularly real-life character created by the comedian Paul Rubens, who died on July 30th, 2023, 
of cancer. And that news has really weirdly hit me hard. And now he's back in a loop in my head. He was 70 years old, but I will never think of him at 70 years old. I will always remember Pee Wee as however old he was when I first came to revere him back when I was seven years old. Paging Mr. Herman. Mr. Herman, you have a telephone call at the front desk. That's not his voice. That's not Pee Wee's voice there. The joke there is that this isn't Pee Wee's voice. He's playing himself as a bad actor, playing the role of a hotel bellhop in a movie within a movie about his life. It's a dubbed voice. That scene is absolutely hilarious in context, but that scene is also much harder to explain than I anticipated. Uh, Sorry, this is Pee Wee Herman's voice. Good morning, Pee Wee! Good morning, Mr. Breakfast! (laughs) This is Pee Wee Herman in his quote-unquote normal voice in another easier-to-explain scene from the 1985 cinematic masterpiece Pee Wee's Big Adventure. In this scene, Pee Wee is carrying on both sides of a conversation with his breakfast, Mr. Breakfast, uh, who is a stack of pancakes with a face, two eggs for the eyes, a strawberry for the nose, and two strips of bacon for the mouth. Mr. Breakfast is also hungry. Okay. <laughs> I pity the poor fool. Don't eat my cereal. <laughs> yes, indeed. That is Pee Wee voicing Pee Wee's breakfast, asking Pee Wee for its own breakfast. This scene is also hard to explain. For such a simple, tremendously goofy, and defiantly childlike universe, Pee Wee Herman is very much an if you know, you know situation. He is world historically absurd, but somehow profound in his total commitment to his own absurdity. He is a man-child in a gray plaid suit with a red bow tie, but crucially, he is a kind man-child. He is often indignant and petulant and unreasonable, but somehow even his childish temper tantrums have a kindness, a benevolence, a winsomeness to them. And everyone, except the guy who steals his bike, And also Randy, the bully puppet. Almost everyone in the Pee Wee Herman universe loves Pee Wee. And they don't think Pee Wee is weird. And they treat him with warmth and generosity and acceptance. And all of those people are pretty weird as well. From Cowboy Curtis to the lady who leads the biker gang and the tequila scene to the king of cartoons to Large Marge. But Pee Wee, in turn, doesn't think they're weird. And he treats them all with warmth and generosity and acceptance. Even Large Marge, uh, sort of. Mr. Rogers plus punk rock equals Pee Wee Herman. It's an ethos. It's a secret handshake. It is a lifelong philosophy or perhaps a religion. It is a universal language. Brought you guys French fries! <laughs> Merci beaucoup, Pee Wee. <laughs> Pee-wee's Big Adventure is probably objectively the best thing he ever did. Uh, Big Top Pee-wee from 1988 is also a movie. But I'm a Pee-wee's Playhouse man myself. Best show on TV in the late 80s. My favorite TV show of all time from the ages of 7 to 37. And my family loved it too. My mom loved it. My brother, my cool aunts and uncles, we bonded over Pee-wee. 
My mom asked me to make her an eBay account just so she could buy the complete run of Pee-wee's Playhouse on VHS and display the tapes in her home. I will never forget my mom laughing when Pee-wee made himself a salad at the salad bar and he got to the sprouts. Looks like hair. Smells like hair. It is hair! <laughs> Just kidding. It's sprouts! <laughs> or maybe you prefer the time Pee Wee said, I love fruit salad, and everyone said, Then why don't you marry it? And so then they staged a wedding between Pee Wee and a bowl of fruit salad wearing a wedding veil. Or maybe you prefer the very first episode of Pee Wee's Playhouse when he makes ice cream soup. <laughs> Today we're going to make ice cream soup! That's my favorite. <laughs> First ingredient in ice cream soup is ice cream. <laughs> ice cream soup is where you dump in a bunch of ice cream and chocolate sauce and swirl it around for 10 to 30 minutes. Kids love it. Most adults grow out of it. That's too bad. The thing about mourning a celebrity, an actor or musician or whatever, a cultural figure, someone whose work and public persona, you know, intimately, but you never met them. You don't know them as a person at all. The thing about this sort of mourning is that you don't always control which celebrity death hits you the hardest. Cultural grief is especially impervious to emotional logic. It is ridiculous, maybe, to say Paul Rubin's death hit me hard, but it did. When Sinead O'Connor died on July 26, 2023, at 56 years old, that hit hard. I find out Sinead O'Connor dies, and that's the end of my day as a productive citizen. I walk into the sea of my mind, right? I spend the rest of the day just thinking about Sinead's son and Sinead's mother and Saturday Night Live and Chris Christopherson. And that tweet I saw going around, something about how the bravest people in real life are not treated in real life the way the bravest people in stories are treated in stories. Bravery is not rewarded in life as it is in fiction. The bravest people in real life are lonelier. And while we're at it, childlike silliness is for sure not rewarded in real life as it is in fiction. That I know for certain. I know that from experience, dude. The silliest people don't date much in college. But the artists, the bands, the cultural figures, the people I've never met but I nonetheless know intimately who keep coming up on this show. Pee-wee, Weird Al, They Might Be Giants, Beavis and Butthead, the folio artist for the fart scene from Blazing Saddles. This is the profound silliness vibe that got to me between the ages of 7 and 16, and it made me. There's that semi-caustic internet meme, right? Blank taught me it was okay to be weird. I always associated it with David Bowie. You know, when David Bowie died and someone would tweet, David Bowie taught me it was okay to be weird, and someone else would reply, you're an accountant. I'm telling you that Pee Wee Herman taught me it was okay to be weird. And I mean it. And I know how ridiculous it sounds. And that's how you know I mean it. Pee Wee Herman more or less sat out the 90s. Let's leave it at that. But Pee Wee was a crucial strand of my DNA in the 90s, in my teenage years, and long into adulthood. I saw Pee Wee on Broadway in 2011 when I was like 33. He started out by reciting the Pledge of Allegiance 
standing next to a flag on a mostly darkened stage. And when the stage lit up behind him, the full playhouse set, the jagged red vinyl door with the portal and cherry and globy and conky and whatever the map was called. And when that set lit up, I lit up too. I teared up. I regressed. I self-actualized. That might be the purest moment of childlike joy I have ever experienced in adulthood. This is who I love, and therefore, this is who I am. And I'm not a violent person or a confrontational person, and I don't stage dive. And generally, I do what I'm told. But I nonetheless fear that I am, at heart, an ice cream soup-eating motherfucker. Let's go. Don't you want to see the rest of the movie? I don't have to see it, Daddy. I lived it. So that's me, but I'm not talking about me right now. I'm talking about who I could have been. This happened when I was 16 years old, maybe 17, early 90s, my first job at a grocery store, bagging groceries. I've been there half a year, maybe, 5.25 an hour, and you best believe I am giving this job $5.25 an hour's worth of effort and emotional investment. And I stumble into work one morning, and there's a baby lion in the store. A baby lion in a cage with a handler. And you can take a picture with a baby lion for $10 or something. The baby lion's on a leash, perhaps, as well. Don't ask me the logistics here. It was either a baby lion or a baby tiger. I forget which. I think a baby tiger is more plausible, but a baby lion is funnier. So baby lion in a cage. Come have your kid take a picture with a baby lion. And I just think, what's the, all right. But we got protesters outside, out on the sidewalk, waving signs at cars driving by. Protesters, fellow teenagers, classmates of mine, most likely. I didn't know them. Furthermore, they were punk rock types. I could tell they were punk rock types because they made me uncomfortable. Spiky and or dyed hair. Nose rings, patches on their ripped jackets touting bands I was not familiar with, confrontational attitudes, and they're all waving homemade signs protesting the grocery store, protesting the exploitation of the baby lion, protesting animal cruelty. And I get an idea. No good ever comes from my ideas at this age, in this era, across this decade. I'm a teenager. I'm in high school, and I'm a reporter for the school paper. My recent articles address such salient topics as aphrodisiacs, Kurt Vonnegut, Radiohead, and how the vice principal should quit telling corny jokes during morning announcements, just to give you a sense of where else my head was at at this point. And now my idea is I'm going to interview for the paper, the punk rockers protesting outside the grocery store where I work. This is what is known in the journalism industry as a conflict of interest. My boss at the grocery store may very well have pointed out this conflict of interest to me, or anyway, he was not psyched when I asked him for comment in my capacity as a reporter for my school paper. My boss declined to comment, and for several weeks thereafter, he called me Scoop, which, as I think about it now, I think he may have meant that pejoratively. 
Uh, hmm. So I'm on break from my job bagging groceries and I go out to interview the scary punks protesting the exploitation of the poor baby lion in my grocery store. And one of my fellow grocery baggers is out there protesting. I don't know her well, but I know her. I work with her. She is protesting her own place of work and she's on the schedule today. She's supposed to clock in in like 20 minutes. And I'm like, are you really going to work? And she's like, I don't know. And I'm scare quotes interviewing her. Right. And she's like, I got to go get something to drink and I can't go in there yet. Right. I'm going to go in my car, go to the gas station, grab a soda or something. You come in and I'm like, all right. I get in her car. She starts her car. Her car's got a tape deck. The cassette tape in the tape deck starts blaring at incredible volume. Minor threat. Hey, no offense to you, whoever you are, but I had the single greatest possible introduction to the legendary 80s Washington, D.C. hardcore band Minor Threat. In one day at 16, I learned about animal cruelty, political protest, journalism ethics, and Minor Threat. Just an exhausting Saturday for 16-year-old me. And on the seventh day, he rested. I forget the exact Minor Threat song playing when she started her car. I would tell you the exact song if I knew it. But the rule is, if I tell you I don't remember it, then I get to just make something up. So maybe it was that song. Maybe it was the Minor Threat song called Minor Threat. Or maybe it was another Minor Threat song. Let's try another one. I get in her car. She starts her car. Her car's got a tape deck. The cassette tape in the tape deck starts blaring at incredible volume. Minor threat. Ooh, what a thematically appropriate minor threat song to start blaring out of that girl's tape deck at that precise moment. I don't want to hear it. Hey, we got a baby lion in the store today. I don't want to hear it. None of your bullshit. What a cool coincidence. Is there a paradoxically uncool option? Would you think less of me if I told you that my favorite Minor Threat song is their cover of I'm Not Your Stepping Stone by the Monkees? I just love the way the drums come in. It's a production thing. I'm doing it. I get in her car. She starts her car. Her car's got a tape deck. The cassette tape in the tape deck starts blaring an incredible volume. Minor Threat covering the Monkees. I think it's cool. Listen, I forget the exact song, but Minor Threat starts blasting in her car at incredible volume. And riding shotgun, I physically recoil from the pure volume, but also from the sheer density of coolness and harshness and intimidation and punk rockness. And I yell, who is this? And she yells back, Minor Threat. And I yell back, oh, cool, because I'm trying to convey while yelling that I totally know all about Minor Threat already. I hadn't heard a single Minor Threat song. And of course, she doesn't buy my attempt at sounding cool. And we drive off, and she buys a soda, and we drive back to the grocery store, and we park where the employees are supposed to park, and we walk in so she can clock in to start work. And this girl gets one look at the baby lion sitting in the cage, and she bursts into tears in front of God and everybody. She turns around, walks out, never comes back. It's the most punk rock action 
I've ever personally witnessed. And I'm left standing there. And now everybody in this grocery store is staring at me, the boy who happened to be standing next to the cool and principled and empathetic punk rock girl. And I am so shocked and moved and confused and sensory overloaded that I too seriously consider quitting for somewhere between five and 30 seconds. And then I tie my apron back on and get back to work. I don't quit because that's not who I am, but I consider quitting because that's kind of sort of who I wish I was. When we have the This episode is brought to you by NetSuite by Oracle. As your business grows, you might start seeing some lag. There's too much work for your team, too many different processes, and it takes forever to close the books. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers, 37,000, 25, and one. 37,000 is the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. It's a cloud financial system that can help streamline accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. That's how many years NetSuite has been helping businesses do more with less. And one, because your one-of-a-kind business deserves a customized solution for your KPIs. It's like when you come here for this podcast or when you check out your favorite website to gather all the info you need to make better decisions for your fantasy leagues. Well, NetSuite does that for your business and then some. It's one efficient system, one source of truth with everything you need to grow. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash ringer. That is netsuite.com slash ringer. This episode is brought to you by Viore. If you're sick and tired of your old traditional workout gear, then I have two words that will change everything. Viore clothing. This line of active wear is truly unbelievable. And here's why. Look, you've seen me. You've seen the shorts I do on YouTube. I walk around, I do stuff. I listen to podcasts when I walk. I make calls when I walk. I like to wear comfortable workout equipment, you know, like nothing nuts, just like a really nice pullover, comfortable pants to walk around. Viore is designed to work out in whatever you're doing, but it doesn't look or feel like you're working out at all. It's so freaking soft and comfortable. You'll never want to take it off. And here's the best part. You don't have to take it off. Wear Viore clothing to train, travel, or lounge around the house. I do a lot of lounge around the house. Go get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at viore.com slash ringer. V-U-O-R-I dot com slash ringer. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. My name is Rob Harvilla. This is the 103rd episode of 60 Songs That Explain the 90s. And this week, we are talking about merchandise by Fugazi from their 1990 album, Repeater. Sometimes I think about getting into a time machine and going back to, okay, 1990, back when I was 12 years old. And it's the dead of night. And 12-year-old me is asleep in bed. And I just sneak into my childhood bedroom and I get rid of all my super 12-year-old shit, right? I steal all my old Far Side daily calendars and my Mad Magazines and my Game Boy and my Pee Wee's Playhouse color form set. I had that. I saw that box again on Facebook yesterday, and it really took me back. And my dog-eared copies of Charlotte's Web and the mixed-up files of Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler and my Vanilla Ice and MC Hammer, and CNC Music Factory, and Def Leppard tapes. I return via time machine 
as an adult to assist in the cultural and spiritual development of my preteen self by manually setting aside my childish things. And all I leave in my bedroom is my dinky little boombox with just the one cassette tape in it. And then I jump back in my time machine with all my old childish shit and I get the hell out of there. And so now my 12-year-old self wakes up and just out of habit, I turn on my dinky little boombox and boom, I become a better, cooler, smarter, more sophisticated and principled and empathetic, but also intimidating version of myself. I become punk rock me. When we have nothing left to Do you ever think like this? I hope you don't, honestly. There's absolutely no point or benefit to thinking like this. Sitting around now as a haggard adult fantasizing about the much cooler music you wish you'd have listened to as a fresh-faced teenager back then. That is not a punk rock me activity. Forget it. Forget I said any of that. I wouldn't really use a time machine to steal immature shit for my 12-year-old self. That's ridiculous. Although, right now, somebody's selling a Pee-wee's Playhouse color form set on eBay for $225. So yeah, I'm taking that shit. I don't have to like merchandising and commercialization and capitalism, but I'm going to make all that shit work for me. You know what? I may have heard about Minor Threat once before prior to the infamous grocery store baby lion or maybe it was a baby tiger incident, but I didn't know this kid was talking about Minor Threat. The high school lunchroom. There's a litany of songs, albums, bands that I overheard somebody talking about in my high school lunchroom and it sounded cool, but I never investigated it. Just an entire sonic atlas of roads not taken. I'm sitting there one day and I'm eating my Johnny Marzetti. Do you know Johnny Marzetti? The food, not the person. It's like a pasta with a ground beef or sausage-based, vaguely chili-adjacent sauce. It's pretty good. There's way worse school lunches, dude. One day I'm eating my Johnny Marzetti and this kid's going, there's a punk rock band called Millen Colin. And they've got a song called Move Your Car. It's hilarious. And I'm like, oh, that sounds pretty sweet. I never got around to Mill and Colin. I'm sorry. This song is pretty good, actually. Move your car. Yeah, I still remember that kid talking about this song, but I actually heard that song for the first time just now. Sorry, Mill and Colin. I've been busy. Actually, while I'm here, I'm pretty sure the Mill and Colin kid was also heavy into the Dead Milkman, a punk rock band with a decidedly extra juvenile Pee Wee Herman mentality, if you don't mind my saying so. I never got heavy into the Dead Milkman, and I totally should have, obviously. But years later, I would learn that my wife's first concert ever was the Dead Milkman. And that, my friends, is yet another reason why my wife is cooler than me. Oh, brother, please look at me. What do you see? Let's travel around the world. Just you and me, punk rock girl.
But so yeah, one day in my high school lunchroom, this kid's just sitting there loudly agonizing over whether or not he's still straight edge. He's talking to his friends who seem a little indignant. And he's like, I don't know, man. I, I thought, I, I mean, I think I'm still straight edge. And at the time, I didn't really know what straight edge meant. And I wish I could go back now and turn to the kid and just be like, what did you do exactly that leads you to suspect that you are no longer straight edge? Obviously, I don't want the answer to that question, but I do still want to ask the question. You know, I knew as a teenager that you could be something called straight edge. And I knew that being straight edge made you probably cooler and definitely better than me. But I was light on the details. And it turns out that as a songwriter, there is a downside to introducing a concept with that much broad cultural appeal cloaked in that much adolescent confusion and ambiguity. Somebody somewhere in high school did try to clue me in as to what straight edge meant. And whoever told me about it definitely told me that straight edge means you don't drink, you don't smoke, and you don't have sex. And the no sex part is not canon if you regard the 45-second-long minor threat song Straight Edge as constituting the canon, though the no-sex part perhaps is canon if you include another minor threat song called Out of Step in the canon as well. But yeah, somebody clues me in on this particular interpretation of straight edge. And my response is, well, it turns out that I'm already the coolest dude in town. Okay, Ian Mackay, singer, songwriter, guitarist, label owner, zeitgeist creator, born in Washington, D.C. in 1962. Do yourself a favor and don't do the math. His first band in high school was called The Slinkies. His second band's called The Teen Idols. Ian's playing bass there and doing backup vocals occasionally. He's not the lead singer yet. When Ian McKay is leading the charge, you know it. That song is called Get Up and Go, and it appears on the Teen Idols EP Minor Disturbance, released in 1980, the first and last Teen Idols release that also has the distinction of being the very first release on Discord Records. That's D-I-S-C-H-O-R-D, the revered and enduring and ferociously independent record label started by Ian McKay and his good friend Jeff Nelson to document the Washington, D.C. independent punk rock scene, with which Ian in particular quickly becomes synonymous. But yeah, the teen idols quickly break up. A key facet of D.C. punk bands is that they often have the lifespan of, like, yogurt uh, check the expiration date, my friends. There's this cool documentary called Salad Days, a decade of punk in Washington, D.C., 1980 to 90. Came out in 2014, directed by Scott Crawford, who'd grown up in the scene. And it's a relentless barrage of cool bands and cool people 
and cool 45 second songs, each of which changed like 5,000 people's lives. So this guy, Jason Farrell, he played guitar in a late eighties, DC hardcore band called Swizz. And Jason is raving about an early eighties, DC punk band called the faith who put out one split album in 1982 with another DC punk band called void, the faith void split. If you know, you know, and then the faith put out one more record subject to change in 1983 and then the band expired and jason is rhapsodizing about how much this faith album subject to change meant to him and he says it's such a perfect little moment and it's beautiful that it died You said it, pal. Meanwhile, Minor Threat, led by our good friend Ian Mackay, hangs in there from 1980 to 1983. Every year that a DC punk band stays together is a decade in normal rock and roll time, which in turn pretty much makes Minor Threat pretty much the most enduring hardcore band ever born. Take a victory lap, fellas. You tell me that I make no difference. In the classic 2001 book, Our Bands Could Be Your Life, scenes from the American Indie Underground 1981 to 1991, uh, written by Michael Azarad, phenomenal book, Ian MacKay talks about how he watched the Woodstock documentary over and over and over when he was a little kid. Actual 1969 Jimi Hendrix Woodstock, not Limp biscuit ass rock bottom for society woodstock 99 and ian carried that original woodstock ideal with him the dream that a rock band could foment a revolution or at least inspire a community millions of people strong who'd go out and smile on their brothers and everybody get together and try to love one another right now and eventually build a better world now knowing what you know or think you know about punk rock as the antithesis of hippie-fueled classic rock, you might be tempted to think that perhaps Ian's being sarcastic here with this inspired by Woodstock business. But something to know about Ian McKay immediately is that he's usually not being sarcastic at all. And when he is being sarcastic, you'll know that too. Minor Threat started out as Ian on vocals, his Discord partner Jeff Nelson on drums, Lyle Preslar on guitar, and Brian Baker on bass. They initially broke up in December 1981 because Lyle wanted to go to college, but turns out Lyle didn't care much for college, so Minor Threat got back together in April 1982, but some people in the scene thought this was a cash-grab reunion, which is funny, first of all, because hardcore bands historically don't make any cash at all. Uh, why do you think they're so pissed off all the time? But Ian didn't think it was funny. And this song is called Cashing In, and it goes out to the various haters of Washington, D.C. Minor threat breakup for real in 83. And meanwhile, D.C. hardcore overall is getting a little, this is glib, but bro -y. 
Uh, all the stage diving, slam dancing, mosh pit action, the mind reels trying to reaccess my 14-year-old mind as I tried to imagine what the classic DC hardcore environment might be like and tried to describe it in words. Slam dancing. I was a how-do-you-do fellow kids type even back when I was an actual kid. But the heart, the soul of the DC hardcore scene rebrands in 1985. And a bunch of new bands form explicitly to play for each other or play for themselves, for their true friends, for the true scene. And that word rebrands is also glib, but not not true exactly, because the summer of 85 is known canonically as Revolution Summer. And in that Salad Days movie, uh, Salad Days, by the way, is another minor threat song about the perils of nostalgia. In that movie, you get a few people quietly, good-naturedly scoffing at the term Revolution Summer. But you also get two separate grown men visibly tearing up as they describe how inspiring, how life-changing Revolution Summer was to them personally. Uh, Jay Robbins of the great DC band Jawbox, he says, and I'm paraphrasing just a little, he says, it's not very punk rock to say punk rock saved my life. But anyway, in 1985, Ian's got a brand new band called Embrace. This song's called Building, and maybe your first inclination, it's not that you think he's being sarcastic, but maybe you assume he's in character, maybe. Ian McKay at this stage already doesn't much present to the world as the failure type, or the I think I'm a failure type, uh, but I don't know, it sure as hell seems like he means it. And right here and only right here, I'm going to say out loud that some listeners referred to this more lyrically bereft and anguished and uncomfortably direct sort of music as emotional hardcore or emo for short. And everyone in that Salad Days movie and pretty much everyone everywhere else within the DC universe, at least, cringes, seethes, recoils and or scoffs way less good naturedly at this term emo in all related terms, and let us never speak of this again for now. And we've agreed to never speak of this again for now, just in time, because here comes this guy. Here we have Guy Pachotto, fellow DC resident and galvanizing frontman for another major revolution summer band called rights of spring. Here we have Guy getting uncomfortably lyrically direct on a song called end on end from the first and last yogurt full length rights of spring record self-titled released in 1985 end on end is seven and a half minutes long or if you prefer a less precise unit of measurement, end on end is roughly eight to 10 minor threat songs long. I compare too many people to Gumby. <laughs> what? It's so weird to say that out loud, but it's true. I overuse Gumby comparisons in my work. 
I know this about myself. A Gumby, the green, bendy, smiling, plucky, claymation children's show character from the 50s. Big revival in the 80s. You got the horse pokey. Pokey is orange, of course. I blame my Gumby fixation on Pee Wee Herman, actually. The same vibe. Retro kitsch for harmless, permanent man children. Guy Pichotto always struck me as punk rock Gumby in his bendiness, in his disquieting pliability, his emotionally racked bonelessness. He's flopping around on stage contorting himself disquietingly. It's like he's trying to stuff himself into a suitcase. If anyone ever asks you, my personal favorite Rites of Spring song is Drink Deep. We got Guy on guitar and vocals, Edward Janney on guitar, Mike Fellows on bass, and make a note of it, Brendan Canty on drums. I got to say, as emotional type, revolution fomenting, let's build a better world type manifestos go, this one's pretty awesome. I believe in moments, transparent moments, moments in grace when you've got to stake your faith. That's lovely. Truly. The urgency, the out-of-control ferocity in his voice as Guy sings it, also lovely in its near ugliness. Rites of Spring lasted from 1983 to 1986. It's such a perfect little moment, and it's beautiful that it died. We're on the hunt now for a band that can crank up both the beauty and the ugliness and the perfection, but stretch out the moment a little longer. Across a full decade, ideally. Across the 90s. All right. I need you to promise me you're going to go watch this. Fugazi formed in 1986 as a trio at first of Ian MacKay on vocals and guitar, Joe Lally on bass, and a dude named Colin Sears on drums who lasted a few months, but then he went back to his old band, Dag Nasty, another rad DC band with Brian from Minor Threat in it. Don't let me get bogged down in this. So Ian and Joe get a new drummer, Brendan Canty from Rites of Spring. And Brendan brings in his old bendy friend, Guy Pichotto, who's just singing and wildly contorting for now, but eventually he'll play guitar as well. And there you have Fugazi. Ian, Guy, Joe, and Brendan. Did you see that tweet going around recently that pissed everybody off? The dude was like, serious question. If the Grateful Dead is not the greatest band of all time from the United States, then who is? I try to avoid viral tweet fiascos. So I didn't get involved. Most likely I was too busy watching either Jury Duty or the new Justified show. But somebody proposed Fugazi, right? As the all-time greatest American band, right? I'm going to be big mad if nobody said Fugazi. This song is called Waiting Room, and it's one of the greatest songs, rock and roll songs, punk rock songs, post-hardcore songs, don't say it songs, 
pop songs, uh, blah, 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 whatever you want to call it songs ever made. Let's not belabor this. Holy shit. And it starts with that pause where the band totally drops out and all the dudes in the crowd whoop. And Brendan whaps the giant bell on his drum kit. I love the bell. The bell is crucial. That pause, the space it creates, the space you, the listener, fill with your surprise and or confusion and or delight, or the space that a rapturous crowd fills with whoops and cheers and whatnot, that pause is the most impactful interval of silence in the history of American song. I've been doing this a little while now, and I am entitled to a little hyperbole for your reference in the recorded version. Waiting Room is the first song on Fugazi's first EP, self-titled, released in 1988. Then came the EP Margin Walker in 1989, and then those two EPs were combined into the album 13 Songs, released later in 89, all on Discord Records, of course. In the recorded version of Waiting Room, the pause is longer, and given the absence of a whooping crowd, it's also much, much quieter. And if this song hits you right at the right age, then that pause and waiting room as a whole is world changing. It is personality defining. It is revolutionary. When I go back in the time machine to steal all my 12-year-old shit and I leave just one Fugazi tape, actually the tape is 13 songs. I want Waiting Room to redefine me. I want to create the alternate universe where Fugazi are immediately and permanently my band. I want to find out how that version of Rob turns out. And while we're just outright fantasizing, I want to be in this crowd at the Wilson Center in Washington, D.C. in 1988 at a benefit for the National Coalition of the Homeless when Fugazi plays Waiting Room and the whole crowd goes apeshit. You can tell just listening to this that all four members of Fugazi are shirtless. Can't you? Their shirtlessness is audible. Their bendiness is audible. You can hear, you can feel how hot it must be in that room. You can feel the elbows in your back and glancing off your head from all the elated dudes in the crowd yelling, I wait, I wait, I wait, I wait. This footage is on good old YouTube. This footage is also in Jim Cohen's 1999 Fugazi documentary instrument. If I had a time machine, I might just go here actually to the Wilson center in 1988. Maybe the elbows in your back that you can feel just listening to this are my elbows. There's a lot of 80s in this episode of a show about 90s songs, I suppose, but I submit to you that Waiting Room 
in its ferocity, in its self-righteous fury, in its dynamic grandeur, in its arena rock bombast, artfully woven into its play your best song first because the cops might shut down this show at any time, DIY punk urgency, waiting room is the blueprint for how much of 90s rock will conduct itself sonically and the impossible ideal against which most of 90s rock will measure itself ethically. This song also kicks ass. I hope you don't mind. I went ahead and tapped in these students from the School of Rock in Cleveland, Ohio, doing Waiting Room Live at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which is also in Cleveland, in 2018. This went viral in spring 2020 after everybody had more or less lost their goddamn minds for other reasons. Anybody who said anything online about this clip other than this kicks ass had for sure lost his or her goddamn mind. The Fugazi release 13 songs is, as aforementioned, technically two EPs crammed together and thus technically not an album, but whatever, dude. You'd be hard-pressed to find a better collection of 13 consecutive songs by anybody collected anywhere. Given my self-consciousness about the 80s of it all, I will limit my further remarks about the songs on 13 songs to the observation that I would also like to take a time machine back to that Philadelphia show in 1988 when Guy screamed the song Glue Man while hanging upside down inside the basketball hoop. Let's see Gumby try this shit. I need you to watch that footage, too. That's also on YouTube or in the instrument movie. I need you to watch that footage and observe how dirty, how grimy Guy's back is. He's shirtless again, of course. I need you to reflect on how exactly Guy might have gotten that grimy. Rolling around on the floor, most likely. Ooh, can I go take the time machine to whenever and wherever that show was where Ian and Guy were trying to get assholes in the crowd to quit moshing and whatnot, and they called out the perpetrators for eating ice cream? I saw you two guys earlier at the Good Humor truck, and you were eating your ice cream like little boys, and I thought, those guys aren't so tough. They're eating ice cream. What a bunch of swell guys. This happened during a show in 1993 at Fort Reno. A venue in D.C. Uh, sorry, it felt weird to me to just be like, wherever this happened. It's against my nature. Also, this is Gee talking. Okay, sorry. This shit you can't hide, you know? You got your fucking shit, but you eat ice cream. Everybody knows it. The whole fucking place knows it. Ice cream eating motherfucker. That's what you are. Amazing. Let me take one more ride in the time machine. At least this one's in the actual 90s also. Here we have Fugazi in front of the White House on January 12th, 1991, in an anti-homelessness rally turned Gulf War protest 
put on by the activist group Positive Force and officially named the Punk Percussion Protest and War on Poverty Not in the Middle East. Fugazi are playing a song called Turnover. The first track on their first official album, Repeater, released in April 1990. You got to watch this footage too. January in Washington, D.C. You got to see for yourself and feel for yourself how cold it is. Guy is wearing a sweater now. Thank you very much. The band are visibly freezing as they perform beneath a banner that reads, There will be two wars. This scene looks miserable and also incredible and also unprecedentedly cathartic, and also maybe the best-case scenario for 90s rock embracing activism and a genuine sense of community, a sense of place. This broad idea now that the internet has decimated the idea of a regional music scene, that everyone just lives on the internet now. Fugazi and Discord Records more broadly have always had a physical, a geographical devotion to them. These guys are from somewhere and of somewhere, and they are decidedly about something. They are about a great many important and honorable things, causes, beliefs, principles. Merchandise is a song about what Fugazi are not about. What do you know about the Washington, D.C. rock band Fugazi if you only know like three things about Fugazi? You know they own their own label, Discord. No major labels, no way, forget it. Ahmed Ertegun, this super legendary Atlantic Records mogul, apparently he told Ian that he wanted to give Ian the same deal Mick got. Mick being Mick Jagger. I'm not sure precisely what the same deal Mick got means in this context, but no, no way. Forget it. You know Fugazi only play all-ages shows, so anybody can go, and their baseline ticket price is $5. You know they won't do interviews with major magazines, Rolling Stone, for example, unless those magazines agree to not allow alcohol or cigarette advertising. Therefore, Fugazi aren't in those magazines. You know Fugazi as the band that says no, the band that objects and rejects, the band that refuses, the band that doesn't want to sell anything, buy anything, or process anything as a career. They don't want to sell anything bought or processed, or buy anything sold or processed, or process anything sold, bought, or processed, or repair anything sold, bought, or processed. You know Fugazi is the band that won't sell t-shirts. What could a businessman ever want more? That last line, the internet really wants me to believe that that line goes than to have us sucking in his store. I have always heard that line as to have us searching in his store, like searching for an identity through buying useless shit through capitalism. Searching just seemed a little more elegant and Fugazi-like than sucking. Either way is fine. I'd walk around in high school and see punk rock types wearing t-shirts that said, this is not a Fugazi t-shirt. 
Remember those? Some guy just started selling them and eventually Ian found out and made the guy donate a lot of the money. I have to say, I always assumed that those were in fact Fugazi t-shirts and Fugazi was just a really sarcastic band. This was my sense of things in high school. That was my problem in high school. One of various, really innumerable problems. Fugazi announced that they couldn't be bought or sold, or processed, right at the beginning of a decade where all I wanted to do was buy anything. Any remotely cool rock band wanted to sell me. Fugazi were the coolest and maybe even best rock band of them all, but they weren't for sale, which means it took me quite a while to actually hear their message that I wasn't for sale either. Do you have any idea how cool I would have been if I'd have bought this record repeater in 1990? I'd have been the coolest. I'd have been the fucking Fonz of the 90s. That's what I said. I wish I'd heard repeater the song in high school. Listen to the bass and drums here. Holy shit. Because if I'd bought that record, then definitely I'd have bought their next record, Steady Diet of Nothing, in 1991. And I'd be the coolest kid you ever heard of playing air bass to Reclamation. Reclamation. And if I'd have bought that record, certainly I'd have bought their next record, In on the Kill Taker, from 1993. And then I'd be the coolest kid you ever heard of playing air guitar to the song Instrument because the guitars in Fugazi never sounded better than they did on Instrument. I'm not even going to tell you what the internet is trying to tell me those lyrics are. I officially do not trust the internet on the topic of Fugazi lyrics. One more. I have a concrete memory of standing in Best Buy and holding a copy of the next Fugazi album, Red Medicine from 1995. You go to Best Buy to buy CDs because they're a few bucks cheaper there, right? Cheaper than Camelot at the mall or at an actual, legit, cool, independent record store. Because CDs at Best Buy are loss leaders, right? Best Buy is luring me in the door with discounted Foo Fighter CDs in the hopes that I will also buy a refrigerator. But Red Medicine was a couple bucks cheaper than everything else at Best Buy. Ten bucks, I think. I still didn't buy it. It was also three to five years before I heard a second Minor Threat song, by the way. God damn it. But Red Medicine did find me when I needed it, when my grandpap died, my father's father. It was not totally sudden or unexpected, my grandpap dying, but nonetheless, for like two weeks after the funeral, the only song I could listen to was Do You Like Me off Red Medicine. That's the only song I played for two weeks. 
at unreasonable volume. That song, Do You Like Me, is for sure not about mourning a grandparent. One could argue that even now, even after I finally got into this band, I got into Fugazi after getting into their last album, The Argument, in 2001, which is their best album, by the way, The Argument, and I mean that very seriously, but I don't have any time to explain it. I'm sorry. Even now, I'm still missing the point of this band, right? I would have been cooler in high school if I'd liked them. Air guitar. I listened to the song Reclamation and my takeaway was air bass. What about the activism, the charity work, the robust political dimension, the principles? A couple years back, Fugazi started selling bootlegs of all their concerts, the Fugazi Live series for five bucks a pop. And I bought one of those shows I wish I'd physically gone to. Fugazi at the Newport in Columbus, Ohio on May 31st, 1993. And that show starts out with a brief speech from a woman starting a 24-hour teen suicide hotline because Fugazi shows would generally start with a speech or two. An activist jumping up on stage, an entreaty or two to visit one of the many informational tables set up in the back. That stuff. That preamble, that proselytizing, that feels just important to the Fugazi ethos as the music itself, right? The three and a half minute track called Intro on this bootleg where they're just talking is just as important as this bootleg's version of merchandise, right? Maybe it really is sucking. Uh, do I hear this band wrong? Am I using this band wrong? Is it wrong that I'm super mad that they went on hiatus after the argument, their best album, and refused to reunite? I want them to tour stadiums with a basketball hoop right on stage so I can watch Gee hang in it upside down while he sings Glue Man. It is rude of Fugazi to not accommodate me now. Now that I'm desperate to make up for lost time after getting to them so late. Because despite the ferocity, the volume, the screaming, the calamity, I do hear an underlying kindness and benevolence and winsomeness to them. A warmth and generosity and acceptance. I did not grow up expecting kindness and acceptance to sound or look like Fugazi. But I learned. I learned because they taught me, eventually. And what they taught me was that true warmth and generosity and acceptance isn't something you can buy. This episode is brought to you by Empower. You got money questions like, can I retire early? What are my best savings options? Can I afford to pay for my kid's education? Luckily, Empower has all the answers. With Empower's real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you get clarity on your real-life financial goals. So join 18 million Americans and Empower What's Next. Start today at Empower.com. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Sponsored by Empower, not an endorsement or a statement of satisfaction by a client. We are so psyched to welcome Jeremy Bohm, frontman for the phenomenal post-hardcore band Touche Amore and host of the first ever podcast. Jeremy, it's great to talk to you. Thank you so much for being here. 
I think it goes without saying that, you know, this is an honor. I've been a big fan of the show for a long time. I've punished you on my podcast. So it's so nice to be here to talk about a band that I love so much with you. Punished is not the word, Jeremy. I had a delightful time talking to you and it's delightful to talk to you once again. Thank you for being here. (laughs) Wonderful. I find Fugazi tremendously intimidating, just as, both as a musical force and as like an ethical, like a principled force. Like it just seems like an impossible ideal. And I wonder what it's like for you being in a band, being in a hardcore, a post-hardcore band. Like, is they are they somebody you aspire to, or are they like just this impossible, you know, figure in the distance that everyone reveres, but no one can come close to, at least from an ethical standpoint. Yeah, I feel like daunting kind of perfectly sums it up. Um, <laughs> like if post-hardcore was a house, I feel like Ian, Gee, and Brendan specifically like laid the bricks with like Rites of Spring, Embrace, right, Egg Hunt, right. like all those bands. Uh, but in like 1988, it's like, you know, Fugazi created the ceiling with that self-titled <laughs> release and Margin Walker, yeah, you know, right. making up like the 13 songs collection. So like you'd be hard pressed to find a band doing as many interesting things like musically that they were doing. Uh, like to me, Fugazi's a bit of a unicorn, like they're uncompromising and wholly original and right. likely pretty lonely as I imagine a unicorn <laughs> would be like, you can't be that fiercely uncompromising without alienating your peers a little bit. Right. Right. No, absolutely. I mean, it seems they were alienating by design almost, you know, just the rigor of what they would do and what they didn't do. It's just uncompromising, absolutely uncompromising. And I, there's no way that doesn't create a loneliness and a singularity, you know, which is clearly the way they wanted it. Totally. I can't imagine what it was like to see them in that regard too, where, Mm -hmm. you know, there had to have been an element of going to see them play where you as an audience member are wondering if you're, you're even behaving correctly. (laughs) Like, like, yeah. Yeah. Like, should I wear this band t-shirt at this show? (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. very self-conscious. Yeah. Is it okay if I move a little bit? I don't want to jostle anyone next to me. I don't want to end up, you know, an ice cream eating motherfucker. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's just, <laughs> I, I totally get you. There's a lot of self-policing that happens. Their reputation precedes them. Totally. Absolutely. You know, you mentioned the early bands, Rites of Spring, Egg Hunt, etc. And like, so they had experience. There were previous bands, but still like, you know, I listened to Waiting Room or Give Me the Shot or Repeater, the song or Merchandise. And it's just this band just came fully formed. Like, how does a band come out of the shoot in the first year or two with songs just this complete, this self-realized, this fantastic, you know? I wish I knew because I think many of us would like to to use whatever whatever spice that is for sure. our own for our own sake. But yeah, no, I f- I feel you. It's really unbelievable. Like waiting room. I mean, the fact that waiting room and merchandise were on the first demo, and when you hear those demo versions of it, though they are different, like the the skeleton is still there. The like song still, is there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like the the choruses which are by punk standards, huge hooky choruses, but I think by any standard, they're huge hooky choruses. Like, um, it's just, it's, it's remarkable songwriting. And the fact that they had it just out the gate, um, is, is really impressive. I mean, minor threat had hooks, you know, I think that that's aside from, you know, the politics and the things that they started, like, you know, 
that I think is a big part of what made them so impactful is that like you hear those songs once or twice, you, you know, you the choruses. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Um, the lyrics were so straightforward, but they also, you know, with how straightforward they were, they were incredibly memorable. And I think that punk rock at its best, um, has that element to it, you know? So yeah, I think it's just like they had all of that DNA and then they just, it was the right four people to start this thing. It's so funny you say self-policing because like to call them catchy, like I cringe a little bit. Like that seems disrespectful to <laughs> right. them, but that's what it is. It's, as you yeah. say, you know, you hear you hear a song once and you know it, you know, the lyrics, you know, the hook, you know, the melody and you know, the message, you know, and that's that's not that's atypical, you know. Yeah. Um, maybe more from an ethical standpoint than a musical one, but like are Fugazi impossible for any rock band to measure up to now? Like no merch, $5 ticket prices, like very few interviews, just zero compromise. Like, is it even possible for a rock band now to make a living like this? Okay, so I thought a lot about this, and the short answer feels like no. Um, <laughs> you'd have to be okay. trust fund kids, or, mm-hmm. or if you did this, like if if a band presented themselves this way, um, everyone would assume that they were trust fund kids or mm-hmm. industry plants because <laughs> gas prices, tolls, like even the cheapest motel rooms right now aren't so uh-huh. cheap anymore. You know, no. so like. You can, yeah, you can always sleep on floors and or in your van, et cetera. But like, you would be scraping, like scraping by holy, and like you would still not be able to afford rent. So, um, but there are some, you know, I was thinking about this, and like there are some very few examples of bands that have been able to pull something like this off. Like, there's a band called Tragedy that are have been around for a really long time, right? So, and they're like a prime example of this where. Um, they'll play very rarely. And when they do, it's like a big event where all of a sudden the flyer hits online and people are like, oh my God, they're playing, right? And the right. last time that they did this, all of a sudden they had a new record at the merch table and the internet went fucking haywire because it's like, yeah. what? Like, you know, there's no album rollout. All of a sudden people sure. are just at the show and there's this record at, there the, it is. at the table. Yeah. yeah. Um, there was a minute there, you'll probably, I don't know if you ever heard this, but there was a minute there where there was like even a genre, like a kind of a tongue-in-cheek name called Mysterious Guy Hard. Hardcore. <laughs> I am not Where? up on this, but I'm very interested. Mysterious yeah. guy hardcore. Okay. It was mostly bands that released like that only did like like a cassette or maybe like one small run of like a seven inch, but they rarely played. Like there was never okay. band photos of them. Um, sure. And all of the recordings truly sounded like they were recorded on like a Fisher Price My First Recorder. <laughs> so <laughs> this so sounds like, great. This sounds yes. absolutely fantastic. Yes. But the I guess what I'm getting at though is though like these bands were not bands that were trying to make a career. These were bands that were just trying to make right. a quick statement and move on. So like at the end of the sure. day to answer your question, I don't think anyone could make a living as a right. musician, you know, it's like it almost feels impossible to make a, music, a living as a musician without <laughs> having to having to talk into your phone on Instagram. You know what I'm right, saying? Right. Yeah. Uh, okay. So just talking about the song merchandise and the band's refusal to sell T-shirts or really anything beyond the records themselves, Fugazi, in essence, is giving up like a massive amount of money, right? Like a primary revenue stream for any band. Like, can you give me some insight into the material sacrifice that they're making as a band that won't? sell merch so like merch is one thing that any band can like rely to survive on which is why especially in this post-covid world there's been such a loud outcry 
um, about the merch cut situation. That right, they're taking through. a percentage at the, the clubs. Yeah, that sounds awful, man. That <laughs> yeah, sounds like bullshit, yeah. Like, unless you're a band that's already been screwed by a 360 deal, uh, which for people who are listening who are unfamiliar, that's where you're, that's where the label gets their claws in like every aspect yeah. of what you're doing because they likely gave you a huge advance. It's very predatory where like, you know, these labels will say, oh, we'll give you, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, but the, and the band's just signed because maybe they're young and unaware. And then they don't realize that, that means that everything that they're doing is coming back to the label. Um, but most, you know, that's pretty rare these days. And especially if you're in a punk and hardcore band, these labels aren't doing 360 deals. So basically, this is like the only way you can make a, any sort of, you know, financial impact uh, while touring. So yeah, the merch cut situation has become really, really heinous, you know, uh, not to get on a, a soapbox a little bit here, but like, oh, please. you know, Go ahead. During, during the shutdown and everything like that, you know, we saw so many venues starting to close or like mm -hmm. venues putting up any sort of like, you know, fundraising to stay open. And look, no one wants to see a venue close. But I think for a lot of us artists, we looked at that and we said, uh-oh, this is going to come back to us because mm. now the venues have the sympathy and the pity from, from sure. your average showgoer because they don't want their venue to close. But the bands know, oh, this is going to actually affect us more. They're going to take more from us because now they feel like they have the authority to to take a bigger cut from us. You know what I'm saying? And oh, there, was like an, there was like an interesting thing where all of a sudden there's like now added things added to settlements where it's like, oh, now there's, you know, cleaning fees. And I remember there was one venue that we played that had a $2,000 cleaning fee added to the, to when you're closing out at night. And then we specifically laughed because we we're like, yo, there wasn't even hand soap in the bathroom. <laughs> like, <laughs> how dare you? You right. know, so... Anyway, what I'm getting at is that, uh, you know, so bands rely on merch so, so much and, you know, it's getting harder out there. Um, Fugazi was a rare case, though, I think, though, because they were self-releasing their own records. And I was told today, I reached out to a few people who are a bit older to ask about their experiences just because I was curious seeing them. And, you know, I was told that they did sell records at their shows. Of course. Which is, yeah. was so, you know... Um, which likely they made a little bit of a higher margin off of because at least they weren't in debt to a label to pay those off, potentially. Mm -hmm. You know, this is me just spitballing. I'm not trying to have any sort of authority here, but... <laughs> it sounds right. That's, uh, yeah, it would be weird, right? The whole point of owning it yourself is that you don't have to pay anybody else. Totally. And, and respectfully, they were lucky to be a popular band and to like have <laughs> that cult following to where sure. like they could sell out a thousand cap room for five bucks a head where even after expenses, worst case scenario, they're walking out with like 2,500, 1,500 bucks. And like at that time, that's a good amount of money. Of so, you know, I, I can't speak, like I said, I can't speak to their finances in any sort of way, but like, um, they were also a label and a band at one point that were selling millions of records. So when you have that kind of revenue stream coming in outside of touring, it does allow you to have some pretty strong stances and get away with it because your bottom line is still taken care of, you know? Right. This is a weird question, maybe. Like, do you understand the principle fully behind this? Like, I guess I do, but I just, I can't imagine anyone, even in the 90s, even at the peak of like sellout, culture like looking down on a band for selling t-shirts right like i to finance their five dollar a show tours like was anybody talking shit about you know a band for selling t-shirts like why 
do you think Fugazi took this stance? And like, what is this stance to you? And like, it kind of gets back to what I was saying in the beginning, where it's like, it's sort of, it's funny because it does sort of like alienate their peers. Like, could you imagine uh, being a band like of equal or lesser value that was playing a show with Fugazi? Like, wouldn't you kind of feel like a cop if you had to set up the merch table at the show? <laughs> yeah, we like, got some t-shirts. I'm sorry. Like, I'm, I'm so sorry. We like, yeah. <laughs> um, but like, I guess to answer your question, like, I I get and respect the hard stance against the like consumer culture and capitalism, but it positions you kind of wide open for like the no ethical consumption under capitalism debate, you mm-hmm. know? Right. And I have to imagine they were probably challenged with that at some point, likely in the Bay Area, likely at Gilman <laughs> by someone. It's who always, from, <laughs> oh, it's always Gilman. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. Like a, someone funny. at Gilman who wrote from Maximum Rock and Roll probably cornered them and wanted to ask him about that. But like, you know, I, like I said, like, Look, I love when a band has anything to stand for, you know, like that's it's it's nice to see. And especially if they really stand behind it. But like um, you have to wonder if in like 2001, they were like, man, did we really have to do that? (laughs) Did we really have to to be so hard about this? But, you know, they they seem, uh, you know, they still seem like pretty uncompromising people. So I'm sure they don't regret it too much. They certainly do. I, in terms of punk and hardcore bands now, younger bands, millennials, whatever, like people who are way too young or not even born yet when Fugazi were active, like what's your sense of how younger generations think about Fugazi now? Are they getting the respect they deserve in your view? Yes. I think that they're one of the few bands that actually like kids do their homework on, which hmm. is getting rarer and rarer, I think. But that's um, true. Yeah, they're <laughs> but at the same time, though, you know, I've heard over the years from younger people being like, yo, they sound like Red Hot Chili Peppers, but <laughs> punk. I'm like, <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> I don't know. That's I'm going to go ahead and not comment on that. Let me think about that for a while. That's, yeah. That, yeah. That's very funny. That's pretty um, funny. <laughs> but I will say that, like, for example, there's a great band that's like on the younger side. They're called Scowl and they covered Waiting Room at Sound and Fury, which is kind of like the, you know, like the premier Southern Hel- uh, Southern California, like hardcore festival here in, you know, here in L.A. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've covered Waiting Room and the audience went off. Sure. And like, though, that's, you know, like an entry point song. And like, it was still exciting to see the younger generation kids still react in that sort of way. Um, I think in a larger sense, their footprint is so massive because they really did inform um, generation after generation to embrace the DIY culture of self-releasing music and printing your own, you know, this or that or whatever else, you know, like I think that they were so massive in the DIY aspect that that influence is just going to continue on from there. Yeah, because you guys, Touche Amore started in 2007, I think, and the argument, like their last record was 2001. So it was like five years solid that they were on a hiatus, which appears to be permanent. Like, what do you, what was your, were they influential to you, to your bands personally at all? Like, where were they in the firmament, like then? You know, it's funny. I, th- I feel like they are specifically a band that, we wouldn't say, oh, let's write a song that sounds like Fugazi. <laughs> but when you're writing a part and it has some sort of like, I don't know, rhythmic thing going, it 1000% of the time gets called the Fugazi part. Yeah. You know the what I'm reggae, saying? Any reggae echo. Yeah, 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 yeah. Totally. So, 
so I, I and I think that that probably spans most bands where it's like they might it's like they're such an impossible band to replicate but if you all of a sudden come up with a part that has a little bit of groove to it it's hard not to be like okay yeah that's the fugazi part it's either fugazi or red hot chili peppers and you just you know you go and you go in whichever direction corresponds to your lifestyle totally I totally guess. Um, Fugazi's reputation, you know, for scolding crowds, you know, the ice cream eating motherfucker of it all, like calling dudes out for moshing, whatever. Like, I'm guessing you can sympathize with them a little bit more than the average person. Like the responsibility that you must feel to crowds, like, and the irritation with crowds sometimes too. Like, how do you get people to behave when you're playing like music designed to get people riled up? Right. It's, it's, uh, it's a really tough question because... All it takes really is like one bad apple, right? So like punk and hardcore shows can be a bit of a delicate ecosystem. Sure. Like for your average audience, everyone inherently knows the rules, right? Like it's sort of built in. Like if someone falls, you pick them back up. If someone gets really hurt, you walk them out of harm's way. Um, occasionally you get the bad apple that's at the show for the wrong reasons. Someone who wants to just swing on people for the sake of swinging on people, as opposed to responding to the music in like a passionate way. Um, those people are often dealt with internally <laughs> at the show, uh, without the band even noticing. Excellent euphemism there. That's great. Yes. That's, yeah. <laughs> um, but what is really tragic is often the bad apple could be a bouncer. Or someone oh, who doesn't, someone who right. doesn't quite understand how a hardcore hardcore show works, and if that goes sour, it can turn into audience and band versus security, and that sadly often happens uh, more often than you think. Um, thankfully, though, like Touche is in a band that invokes a lot of spin kicks and hard moshing. <laughs> thankfully, we do uh, we inspire more of like stage diving and people climbing on each other to sing along. Um, but you do your best to kind of like keep an eye out for people in the first few rows, you know what I'm saying? And like you keep an eye out for people who might be like touching somebody inappropriately, like a crowd surfer or like someone who stage dives feet first where you're like, okay, let's maybe not do that because that's like the most streamlined way to permanently injure somebody to um, drop kick somebody yeah 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 i think you know something that is really annoying is like we'll walk into a venue often and if we see that there's a barrier we'll try to have a conversation we'll be like hey what do you think the chances of getting rid of that barrier are and you know often there's a compromise is like oh well how, what if we just push it up against the stage and then they don't put a bouncer between the stage and the barrier which mm. is so much more dangerous because if someone falls in that gap with there's right. no one there to catch them so like i said it's like it, hardcore kind of knows how to run itself right for the right. most part but you know unfortunately there are those situations where somebody acts a little sideways and then it you know it gets dealt with one way or another and you hope that uh police aren't involved at the end of the show <laughs> dealt with internally that's very funny i'm thinking about the footage that i've seen of fugazi shows and i think you're right that it's always like one or two people right they're like you right there like that you know that's they're calling out individual members it's not the crowd as a whole as you say 90 to 95 percent of the people know how to behave but you know if you don't have everybody then then you're screwed <laughs> totally and you know i think that this day and age it is different certainly than then you know like there was a lot more of like a violent skinhead movement back in the band in the era of of fugazi whereas like those people got kind of you know kicked out of the scene pretty 
like way before my time, even, you know, like those people don't show up very often, thankfully. And like, yeah, it's just a different era. You know, people are also afraid to look embarrassed on, on Instagram. Like if something goes viral, go. someone acting, acting sideways. So I think that that also might be a little bit of a, of a deterrent. That's interesting to think about Fugazi shows and like the, the, the most infamous crowd versus Ian moments is like very early viral shaming phenomena. That's a really exactly. interesting lineage. Wow. That's funny. That's very yeah. funny. <laughs> Ian would have been great on Instagram if it had been around <laughs> a night. So that would have been hilarious. Uh, do you think that Ian Mackay regrets writing the song Straight Edge? Like, what happens to you when you write a song, as you say, that's so catchy and it becomes like a movement that everyone assumes you're the spokesman for? You know, how do you deal with that? Right. I enjoy this question specifically because I am a 40-year-old straight-edge person. Been straight-edge <laughs> since I was 14. So you were the go. target march. It's 14. I'm, okay. Yeah. Wowza. Yeah. How dare... How, like, at four, what am I doing at 14? I, I'm, <laughs> whatever. Being ethical, dude. I don't know. What, what do you want? It's, you, were, you, were, you had it all figured out. Yeah, I wish I had a cooler story other than, like, it was a great tag. It was a great, like, symbol or thing to, to claim when, at the end of the day, it was really just, like, I didn't want to upset my parents who asked me not to do drugs and drink. <laughs> so I was like, there oh, we this go. gives me a, a straightforward way to say it. Um, but to answer your question, like, I have to imagine it's a bit lopsided mix of like pride and regret. Like he doesn't strike me as a super prideful person. Um, so that's the lesser of them. But I have to imagine he feels at least kind of cool deep down that he started something that has had a majorly positive impact on people's lives, but yeah. the regret comes from, you know, when something gets away from you and out of your control, which it very much did. And like the violence and the militant side and things like that, that came out of it, which is beyond his control. I mean, I'm sure you've seen the footage. It's, it's like a, you know, you talk about like Ian memes almost, but like there's that classic story of the kid coming up and, you know, asking him about how he's drinking iced tea and how his friend says, if you, you know, caffeine is a drug and his response is tell your friend, I said, fuck you. <laughs> so it's like someone trying to make rules for him, even though he's right. the one that created this thing. <laughs> tell your friend, I said, fuck you. This is exactly. the best band of all time. It's so the best. Uh, you told me the three Fugazi records you're most into are 13 songs, repeater and end hits. And I really wanted to ask about end hits. It's from 98. Like, I love that record. I think it's one of the few like underloved records in the Fugazi catalog. Like what draws you to that one in particular? Yeah. So, you know, thankfully by the time I discovered Fugazi, like I already had, there was all these records to sort of choose from. Right. Like I was, they weren't coming out as I was into them. So that helps in a way. So they, that just happened to be a record that I gravitated to. Maybe it could have been the cover art. I don't know. I don't really know what, it's but good cover. Um, it's really good cover. Good cover. Yeah. Um, but I think when I really think about it now, as I'm familiar with all the records, I think it's the evolution of Guy's voice on that. Like mm. he really kind of harnesses like this amazing vibrato that almost feels like Sleater Kinney ish. And oh, it really I think works. You're right. Yeah, yeah, it really works particularly well on that album. Like the opening track, Break Alone. I love is that doing, song. Oh, is doing so many interesting things. Like that really ugly piano note in the intro that <laughs> do, fights do, against do, the melody. Do, do, do. Yeah, that's the song, man. That really yeah. is the song. 
and then like when it finally hits the like four lines of lyrics it's presented in this like ultra poppy hooky cadence that almost <laughs> is like it that like defines the band in a way where it's like here's all this yeah. really challenging music and then we're gonna hit you with this really hooky part and then um, go back to the challenging right. shit yeah totally yeah. They challenge you while giving you something to latch on to. Like the song No Surprise, which is probably my favorite song on the record, like yeah. has such a hypnotic feel to it that I found myself like listening to that song on repeat and at times because it does just feel like you could start and stop it over and over, you know? Yeah. That's cool. The Slater Kenny thing is really cool because that's like I love like the hot rock era Slater Kenny. You know, and I think that's right around the same time. And there's a lot of there's a lot of parallels there. But yeah, I'm really glad you're writing for that record. I don't I don't hear enough praise for end hits, and I'm I'm glad you're helping. Correct. Hell yes. Uh, this has nothing to do with Fugazi at all, uh, and I am sorry about that. But I, Jeremy, you appeared in the 2022 film Weird, the Al Yankovic story, and I am obligated <laughs> to ask you. To tell me all about that. This is really funny because there is actually an Ian Mackay parallel with this. See, I knew I was. I okay, fantastic. I don't know what it is, but <laughs> all right, no, this, you'll, you'll enjoy this because actually, there's even a, a follow up to it that just happened on this last European tour we just got home from. So, I was lucky enough to interview the director of Weird uh, on my podcast months before it even got announced that this thing was happening, and he, uh, his name is Eric Capel. He's wonderful. Um, he had directed a bunch of TV stuff, like for example, like he helped develop the Andy Milanakis show because that was his roommate Ooh, in college, yeah. kind of a thing. So anyway. Okay. So he gets attached to this movie. Uh, I just, I read it and I'm like, I see a news post. I'm like, good for Eric. That's fucking cool. And uh, he hits me up just a few days later and he's like, I got a question for you is, or two questions. Is your head still shaved? And are you available on these days? (laughs) And I was like, I don't know what this is in reference to, but I could be available. And he was like, guess what? Uh, Al, uh, there's going to be a scene in this movie where uh, Weird Al tries out for a punk band and um, Al asked me specifically if I know anyone who actually looks like they play in a punk band and you're the first person you I do. thought of. You so, really do. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, I am so honored. Let's do it. That's incredible. So, you know, uh, I'll fast forward. We get to the set. Uh, so the two other members of the of this fake band are uh, John, comedian Johnny Pemberton and also Jonah Ray, um, who already have a relationship with Weird Al Yankovic. So we show up the set and uh, Weird Al comes running up to them and he's like, Jonah, Johnny, so nice to see you. And then he turns to me and he goes, Jeremy, it's so nice to meet you. And my brain melts because I'm like, man, what is happening right now? What do you, what do, crazy- you do? Yeah. Um, also, by the way, uh, we the, we perform in the in that movie, and uh, we are actually playing the song. And like leading up to it, I was like, "What are we playing? Like, what are we <laughs> lip syncing something?" And um, you know, Eric says, uh, "We'll just make up something on the spot." But I'm like, way too much of a Boy Scout for that. Sure. So I'm like overly preparing, coming up with little dumb riffs You're and sending composing. Them- <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> And so we show up and then like, so we meet Weird Al and Weird Al says, let me teach you the song. And I immediately start panicking because I'm like, am I good enough? This man is a genius. Like, can I play what he's about to play? Ends up fine. It was super, super crazy. Uh, It was a remarkable experience. Just the nicest guy. But okay, so this is the part that involves Ian Mackay. I get told as I'm in the makeup chair, oh, did you get all your tattoos cleared? (laughs) 
And I was like, what? And basically you have to have the artist who's done all of your tattoos sign off that they can be the on actual film. tattoo artist. I, right. You told, you told me about this. I forgot about this. Oh yeah. my God. How many tattoos are we talking in your case, Jerry? I have a lot. And again, I'm way too much <laughs> a of a lot. Boy Scout. Sure. So I'm like, so I'm actually hitting up all of these different tattoo artists, which I don't need to do. Like most people are like, just say it was all one person. Like no one's going to actually come for you. Um, but again, I'm a, I'm a big, I'm a big uh, Boy Scout. So you'll notice I have the minor threat sheep, right? You do. So out of step. Yep. So I hit somebody up who I know knows Ian and I'm like, can, is there any way I can get in touch? So I email Ian Mackay oh and I, God. and I'm like, he's got to be able to read this email because like, I, like, I don't want him to scroll past it. So I make the title minor threat tattoo in weird Al Yankovic movie. <laughs> I'm like, there's God. no way he's not going to, no open one this. is scrolling past that. Not even Ian Mackay. That is a guaranteed so he opens it and he responds so politely and he basically ends with saying, um, I got to say, when I was in minor threat, I never thought that anything like this would ever possibly happen. <laughs> so you got our blessing and thank you so much for even, you know, being so kind and reaching out about this. And that was my only time ever having any sort of interaction yeah. with Ian McKay was because of this weird Al Yankovic movie. And then funny enough, so we just played a festival of bad religion mm -hmm. and Brian Baker, guitar Brian player, Baker. minor threat. Yeah. He's at the festival and I, I'm standing in line behind him in the catering area. Oh I tap his God. shoulder and I say, hey, man, I'm a huge fan. Funny enough, let me tell you this. You know, I tell him the kind of the story and he goes, that's you? There was a whole group <laughs> chat about this whole situation. <laughs> so my day was made. I was like, these guys talked about me in some sort of circumstance. I think that I achieved maximum level straight edge at that moment. That is as straight edge as you can possibly get. You are <laughs> certainly the coolest person who has ever appeared on this program or who I have ever <laughs> talked to in any contest. Jeremy, this has been wonderful. Congratulations to you for winning life. That's very exciting for you. Thank you so much for talking, dude. This has been phenomenal. Thank you so much, Rob. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks very much to our guests this week, Jeremy Bohm. Thanks very much to our producers, Jonathan Kerma and Justin Sales. Thanks to Chloe Clark for additional production help. And thanks very much to you for listening. And now, without further ado, it is time to go listen to Merchandise by Fugazi. We'll see you next week. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.